Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when the evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Genseret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Uh, we started this, this series kind of going through the Gospel of Mark. One of the four Gospels, all about the life and ministry of Jesus. We're going to spend most of the year in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and sort of the big idea that we've said, the big idea, the big purpose of this Gospel is to sort of settle the score on who Jesus really is. Who is Jesus and why does he matter? We're looking at who Jesus really is and how he ends up being a lot better than the assumptions that we tend to make about him. And so what we've been doing is we've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, sort of breaking up the gospel of Mark into these little bite-sized chunks, and, uh, which has been a lot of fun. But one of the disadvantages to that is, is when, you, when you break it up that way, you can, if you're not paying attention, sort of lose sight of how the gospel of Mark as a whole fits together. You can lose sight of how the gospel of Mark is, is, is actually written as sort of this, this, this running narrative. It's one long drama where each turn in the road sort of reveals more and more about who Jesus is and why he matters. The book is meant to be taken originally as a whole piece where each sort of episode, if we want to call it that, where each episode sort of carries elements of the story, like the lessons, the tensions, the conflicts, into the next. Uh, so a, a few, for, for example, like a few years ago, uh, my, wife, uh, my wife Alyssa and I were down in Escondido at this, this conference that I was speaking at. And one of the mornings that we were there, we kind of show up at the conference area, and as we're waiting for the first session to, to start, I start charging my laptop. I'm charging my laptop because the battery got, was, was drained from it. It was dead and I wanted to take, to take notes. And so the reason my battery was drained is because we, we watched a show on it in our hotel room like the night before. As there's a fun little fact for you that, that we discovered that morning is that if your MacBook dies while you're watching something, then the next time you, you get your MacBook kind of back on, it's going to start auto-playing whatever movie you had, like, the next time that you open it. All right? So there we were in this conference area at, the, at this church, and the first session is about to start. 
And so the host sort of welcomes everybody and, and, and everyone, you know, kind of simmers down and grabs a seat uh, in the conference area. And then the host starts introducing the speaker. And at that point, I'm, I'm opening up my laptop. I turn it on because I want to take notes. And then at that moment, on full volume, as the first speaker is kind of taking the stage, my laptop goes, previously on Lost, right? Like really loud all throughout the, the church. And then there's like explosions and, and gunfire and like, Jack, no! It's super embarrassing for me. And if you've ever watched Lost, then you're kind of familiar with that phrase, right? Previously on Lost. Or really like any sort of binge-worthy show, right? Like previously on X-Files. Or you can hear Kiefer Sutherland's voice like previously on 24, right? They call that part of, of the show where they, uh, in the beginning, they call that a recap sequence, where at the beginning of an episode, they sort of revisit sort of the, the tensions and the conflicts and all the major plot points that exist from previous episodes to kind of catch you up to speed, to make sure that you as a viewer are, men are like mentally that you're taking, uh, you're, you're, you're being brought into the next episode. Like they're setting you up for whatever's next, what you're about to watch. And our text this morning, Jesus walking on the water. Our text this morning in Mark 6, beginning in verse 45, uh, is kind of like that where you need to know sort of the major plot points and tensions and conflicts from the previous passages of Scripture, and you need to carry them into this one if you really want to get the main point of this particular text. For example, like last week, Scott walked us through one of the more famous stories in the New Testament where Jesus feeds thousands of people uh, with just a few fish and a few loaves of bread. And there was this important lesson from that whole event that Jesus' 12 disciples that apparently we're supposed to get, but we find out in our passage today they missed. And we know that because if you look down at verse 51 in Mark chapter 6, going into verse 52, here's what it says. It says that they, the disciples, were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves from earlier because why? Their hearts were hardened. Now that is sort of a dark note that we see in this gospel for the disciples, right? We meet the disciples in Mark chapter 1. As Jesus starts recruiting them to his mission, he starts recruiting them for his cause. And so far we've seen that the, 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 the disciples are either confused at worst or they're ministering alongside Jesus at, at best. But here in our passage... It says their hearts were hardened. They missed one of the main points that he, Jesus was trying to, to make from his miracle earlier with the loaves and the fish. The disciples are following around. They see him. They hear him preach. They watch him perform miracles. And what's happening is they're amazed by him, but they haven't quite yet placed their, 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 their faith in him. And that's because they still haven't quite learned the important lesson of who he really is and what he really came to do. And so with that, we'll dig into our text this morning. We're in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45, and we're going to walk through three main points. Three main points. First, that Jesus provides a different kind of rescue. Secondly, that Jesus himself is a different kind of rescuer. And thirdly and lastly, we're going to look at the difference between astonishment and faith. So let's look at that first one, a different kind of rescue. Start in verse 45 with me. 
It says immediately, after the loaves and the fish, immediately he, Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. So, Jesus is here dismissing the crowd from the massive miracle picnic that we just looked at last week. And he's, he's at this point sort of at the height of his popularity, right? Jesus is at this point in the Gospel of Mark more popular than we've seen him ever be before. This is the first recorded time where thousands of people showed up at the same time to spend time with him. And so you picture what just happened, this giant hillside of people filled with thousands of men, women, and children, kind of like if you imagine the, the Verizon Amphitheater, right? Like this large hillside. Uh, is that still there, the Verizon Amphitheater? No, it's not. Okay. Well, if you've been there before, imagine what that looks like, right? It's just this giant, massive hill where thousands of people sort of lined, can line up on there for, for like concerts and, and, and things like that. And so you imagine that many people packed on this hillside. They're all there to hear from Jesus. And Jesus takes one, one boy's packed lunch and he feeds every last one of those people, every single one of them, until everyone was full and satisfied and and, and, and that's, what, that, that's what we talked about last week. Now, now here, right after that, verse 45 says, immediately after that, Jesus now rushes his core disciples into a boat. And he sends them off to the other side of the lake, to Bethsaida. And then Jesus goes up a mountain by himself to pray. Now look at verse 47 with me. It says, when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and, and he, Jesus, was alone on the land. Verse 48, and then he saw that they were making headway painfully. The guys in the boat were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. I'll stop right there. So I want you to picture this scene, all right? It's evening. The sun has gone down. Jesus, at this point, is by himself. He's sort of getting some quiet time on the side of the mountain here. And the disciples are in a boat. He sent them ahead of him out on the sea. And it says that they were making headway painfully. That's another way of saying that this was really hard, right? They're in this boat. They're rowing the boat, and this was really hard for them. They're rowing this boat across the lake, and the wind is causing problems because it's coming up against them. Uh, and they start rowing, it says, painfully. Now, the original Greek word there for painfully really means like torturous, so they're rowing and rowing, and it feels like intense torture, which reminds me of the first time I ever tried CrossFit, right? which was over the holidays, my first and last time trying CrossFit, uh, several months ago, my neighbor John across the street, he invited me to join him on, on some like bring a friend day that they had going on uh, just down the road from here. And so I went. And I was really stoked to find out that there would be no running that day because I hate running. Instead, for cardio, they said there wouldn't be any running, but we'd be doing rowing instead. And so now I hate running and rowing. Jesus' disciples, they're rowing in a boat, and they're not having fun either. It says it's torturous for them. And if you look at the timeline clues that they are kind of there in that verse, and if you do the math, you, you find out that they've been rowing for about eight hours. Eight hours rowing this boat across the lake. That's a long time. 
right? Like imagine an entire workday of rowing against this gnarly headwind, against an angry sea, which is what verse 48 says. It's dangerous, it's discouraging, it's torturous. It's sort of kind of like this, like, man, what, what gives sort of moment, right? Like, what gives? Why, why is this so hard? They're going nowhere. How many of you can relate to that feeling? Where you feel like you're, you're, you're trying to pursue, you're, you're, you feel like you should be in the middle of God's will, but some obstacle gets in the way and you feel like you're going nowhere fast. I want you to notice something here. How did the disciples, how did, how did Jesus' disciples, how did they get in this mess? How did they get on the lake? Were they disobedient? Did they have bad timing? If you remember from verse, 45, from, from verse 45 that we started with, actually look at it really quick with me. In verse 45 it says, immediately he, Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. So what does that tell us? This torturous mess of a day is right where Jesus wants them. This hard day, this hard labor is right where God wants them. Which should make us ask, why would Jesus ever want his disciples to go through something like this? Sounds like a hard day. Why would he expose them to danger? Why would he expose the disciples whom he loves to discouragement? Why would he expose them to discouragement? If Jesus is God, if if God is supposed to be a God of love and of mercy and of grace, then why would he put them through this? And it's because he knows something important about them. Jesus knows something important about these disciples that he chose. He knows where they're at. He knows what he's preparing them to do. And what he knows is that they, at this moment, are not where they need to be. And when I say that they're not where they need to be, I don't mean like geographically, but spiritually. Jesus wanted them to grow spiritually. He wanted to strengthen them spiritually. You see, they didn't get the important lesson of the fish and the loaves from the the hours before. They didn't get that important lesson about who Jesus really is and why he really matters. And so, because Jesus loves them, because he wants to prepare them for the privilege of the mission that he's calling them into, because of his mercy and his grace and his love, Jesus is going full throttle to strengthen their faith at this moment. I love this quote from from Paul Tripp when he says, in love, God will take you where you do not want to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. I'm going to read that sentence again. In in love, God will take you where you do not want to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. And he says, it is uncomfortable grace, but it is still divine and it is still tender grace. And I love that. I love the way that he describes that. You see, 
Christ Jesus will take you where you do not want to go in order to produce in, in you, in order to produce in me, what we cannot achieve on our own. And the Bible says that that is grace. It's not saving grace. It's not the grace of relief, which we still get in little pieces and will ultimately get at the end of time. But it is the current now grace of radical, personal, and sort of, it's the grace of reforming and sort of refining our hearts. That refining might be uncomfortable and it might be hard and difficult and maybe even at times torturous, but it is still grace and it's still good for us, for God's people. You see, God's grace is not always a refreshing drink on a parched throat. Sometimes it feels naturally uncomfortable when God is doing a supernatural work of conforming us to the image of Christ. And so if Jesus is your savior, then the question isn't, will God show his transforming grace to you? The question is, will you, will you, Christian, will you see it And will you receive it when it comes? And continue in verse 48 with me. He says, And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. Jesus came out to them walking on the sea. So Jesus walked out to them. Not to save their lives this time, like he did in chapter 4, if you guys remember that. Last time they were crossing the sea and a storm came, they thought they were going to die. And Jesus saved their lives. But here, he walks out to them not to save their lives like he did in chapter 4, but to save, this time, their faith. In chapter 4, they were afraid of dying, but here, the danger wasn't physical, but it was spiritual. The issue for them now is that they can't move forward. They can't move forward on the mission. They can't progress. They couldn't get to where Jesus wanted them to go because of this storm, because of the headway, because of the winds. They tried and they exerted all their physical and emotional energy and effort, but they still kept finding themselves stuck. Have you ever felt stuck like that? Have you ever felt stuck like that? And maybe you're here this morning And you feel like you are relentlessly pursuing the will of God for you. But you find yourself stuck and confused with these obstacles that are keeping you from moving forward. And and you, like the disciples, are kind of like, what gives? What gives? Like, why is this happening to me? You might even call it torturous. Would you be willing to consider, in light of the truths in this passage, that maybe... Maybe that is God's uncomfortable grace for you. Maybe that is God's uncomfortable refining grace, bringing you somewhere you do not want to go in order to produce in you what you cannot achieve on your own. Which leads us into our second point. I want us to see how Jesus is a different kind of rescuer. He's a different kind of rescuer because see, a couple chapters earlier in Mark, at the end of Mark chapter 4, we saw when Jesus calmed that storm, 
He rescued them in a very uh, in a very literal way. He rescued them in a very physical way. But here in this passage, we see he's a different kind of rescuer, an even better type of rescuer. When we read that Jesus walked on the sea, that should blow us away. All right, that should blow us away. Jesus is walking on. Water, like him walking on the water of the sea isn't some cute Jesus thing he gets to do that maybe sometimes if you grew up in the church, you kind of get inoculated by stories like that, right? Like, oh yeah, Jesus is the one who, who walks on water. No, we should go, Jesus is the one who walks on water? Like that should blow us away. This is the, this right here, this, this time where he's walking out on the sea is the display of the glory of God right in front of their eyes. And it floored them. It mesmerized them. And it should, it should do that for us too when we read that he walked out to them on the sea. And what does that tell us about the kind of rescuer Jesus is? What kind of rescuer is he? He is God himself. Jesus is God himself. You see, the disciples at this point did not understand yet You'd think that they would by now, but at this point, they still did not understand the true nature of Jesus' godness. They understood that he was one sent by God, but they didn't realize that he was literally God. But there on the sea, Jesus is displaying for them his true nature by taking a stroll, by walking among the waves. And you have to understand uh, and notice here that Jesus is more than just walking on water. He's walking, remember, through a storm. He's walking through a storm. Remember the strong headway that was so strong that 12 dudes on a boat, like a dozen dudes, couldn't merrily row their boat, right? Life was not but a dream for them at this moment. 12 guys rowing the boat, and Jesus is just walking out in that storm to this boat. There he is in the fullness of his glory and majesty, showing on storm. In chapter 4, we saw that he spoke to the raging sea and made it stop, but here we see that he walks on the raging sea. He's untouchable. Jesus, in this moment, by being the power of God, the incarnation of God, the majesty and glory of God walking out to them is literally displaying the gospel. He's literally displaying, he's embodying the good news of Jesus Christ. Why he came, that our great God in all his splendor, in all his majesty, in his infinite greatness, pursues these disciples. God in his holiness, in his untouchableness, steps down to pursue those that he loves. He comes down off the mountain. He walks across the raging dark sea just to, to be with them, to pursue them, to pursue an, an intimate relationship with his people, to, to comfort them. You see, Jesus is literally embodying the reason he came, that he is God with us. God with us. God on high coming down, taking on dirty human flesh so that he could live among us. So he could serve us and sacrifice himself 
for us. And then in verse 49, as the text continues, it says, but then when they saw him, when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. So Jesus is pursuing these disciples. He's after them. He's come down for them. He crosses the sea to get them. He's already displayed and revealed so many wonderful things about himself to them. And what happens? How do they respond? The disciples aren't comforted. It says they're terrified. They think they're looking at a ghost. Now, why, did, why are they terrified? You see, because the image of Jesus walking out to them is so jarring and they had, it is both on the one hand so jarring an image to them, and on the other hand, they had so missed the point of who he is and what he was teaching them that they thought the only logical conclusion must be, this must be a ghost out to get us. They didn't think, hey, this must be Jesus. I mean, we've seen him do these other crazy things, right? This must be him. This must be the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who, who, who healed the paralytic, who, who uh, exercised the demons from the, demon, the, the, the demonized man, who, who is raising people from the dead. They didn't think, they, after seeing him do all these other crazy things, they didn't think like, oh, this must be the Lord Jesus. No, they walking out on the water to us. Instead, they assume this must be a ghost. And I think if we're honest... Those of us who are believers here in this, in this room, like we can be the same way. We can be the same way. Like we might be tempted to read passages like this and think to ourselves like, these guys are idiots, right? These guys are fools. They're so dense. How do they not get the point by now? But we're a lot more like them when we, than we think and than we'd like to admit when we respond to hard stuff in life by freaking out instead of responding in faith. When you focus more on the scary possibilities in front of you than the power of God over you. Some of us are better at seeing ghosts than we are at seeing Christ Jesus. And when troubles come, we think there's no way that Jesus can be with me in this. When our day feels or season feels torturous, we're like, there's, there's no way that Jesus can be in control, that he can be with me. There's no way that he can be after me. And then we get discouraged or despondent or just feel totally like paralyzed and immobilized as if we've never tasted that the Lord is good. As if we've never seen his faithfulness in our lives like we've never experienced his mercy and his grace. And you know what's, what's, uh, you, you know what's beautiful and, and just scandalously beautiful about this whole scene as it's unfolding? Is that we see in Jesus that even when we are faithless, he is yet faithful. Even when we are faithless, he is yet faithful. Remember, this passage is about Jesus' transforming grace. 
And we see that no matter how frequently the disciples have missed the point, Jesus doesn't scold them. He doesn't scream at them. He doesn't give up on them. He doesn't shame them. What does he do? Look at how he responds in the rest of verse 50 with me. It says, and halfway through verse 50, it says, immediately he, Jesus, spoke to them and said, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. Jesus is relentless in his grace. He is stubbornly relentless in his grace for those that he loves. That's the kind of rescuer that he is. The type of rescuer that is relentless in grace. You see, when Jesus says, don't miss this, when Jesus says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. In the original language, he is literally saying, I am, don't fear. He's saying, I, the church, you know that he's at that point quoting one of the Old Testament names of God, Yahweh, which literally means I am. If you don't know the backstory, this is the name that God gave to Moses in Exodus 3 when God told Moses to go and deliver his people to lead them. And when Moses asked, well, who, Lord, should I say sent me? The Lord replied, tell them I am sent you. Which was God's way of revealing the deepest, most secret part of his identity, that he's just the God who is. He's the God who can just say, I am. He's the great I am. He's the God with no beginning and no end. Eternal, unchangeable, impassable, entirely perfect in every single way. He's saying, I am just because I am. No one can say that except the creator of the universe, the source of all that is true, good, and beautiful. And so when Jesus said, take heart, it is I, or I am. Jesus is revealing to his disciples that he is a creator God. The one who made the whole universe, who made everything, including this huge galaxy that we call home. He didn't just create the seas and the storms down below. He created the giant hurricanes of stars and planets and space dust that we live as tiny specks on. That is the Jesus of the scriptures. That is the Jesus who sent his disciples into this mess. And that is the Jesus who pursues them in it so that he might strengthen them. He's the God who created everything from the heavens on high to the depths down below, and he sustains it all, the scriptures say, with a single thought. I, I, I want sort of like the weightiness of that to sink in for you. I want the weightiness of that to sink in for you because for most of 21st century Western Christianity, we try to make God so approachable that we miss out on how great he is. And so I want, I want that to kind of sink down for you. 
You see, because for some of us, when we think of Jesus, we don't think about his greatness or his majesty or his godness. We think of him as meek and mild Jesus. But the scriptures say that he, Jesus, is the physical image of the invisible God. He is God with us. And before he took on flesh, he stood above creation, Colossians 1 says, uh, above all creation, above everything that you and I know. And he made it all. He's the source of it all. He's not just the greatest source of power. He's the source of all power. And all power in the world is on loan from him. Now, what does that do for us? If you're a follower of that God, if you, if you know this Jesus, what does that do for you? What does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus is a different kind of rescuer, a divine rescuer, the creator himself who is recreating us and renewing all things for his glory and the praise of his grace. And that should strengthen our faith. That is strengthening grace, which leads to our third and last point. I want us to see now the difference between astonishment and faith. Look at the difference between astonishment and faith. Read the last half of verse 50 again with me. It says, but immediately... And Jesus spoke to them and he said, take heart, it is I, I am, do not be afraid. And in verse 51 it says, and he, Jesus, got in the boat with them, the disciples, and the wind ceased. And they, the disciples, were utterly, what does it say? Astounded. They were astonished. They were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now, what I want you to see is first that if the great I am, if Yahweh, the source of all truth, goodness, and beauty, the creator of everything, if the great I am is your rescuer, then he's the one who not only rescues you with saving grace, but with transforming grace. If he is your rescuer, then that changes everything. As Jesus told the disciples, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. I am. Don't be afraid. And so what that means is when you're having a rough day at work or a rough week, maybe the team that you work with is falling apart, your sales aren't closing, the boss is being terrible, you can hear the words of Jesus saying, Take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. Maybe you're a parent having a rough go with, with, with your kids in this season of life. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom and the kids are just out of control one day and, and you can hear the words of Jesus, take heart, I'm with you, don't be afraid. Maybe it's a broken relationship with a, a friend a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a fight within your marriage if you're married, or maybe with another family member, you can hear the words of Jesus, take heart, I'm with you, don't be afraid. Or when you're facing unexpected illness or 
or old age is sort of creeping on in on you and, and, you, and your body and mind are just not what it used to be. You can hear the words of Christ saying, take heart, I'm with you. Don't be afraid. You see that? That connection between Jesus' proclamation and how it hits us at our hearts and throughout the week. That is the difference between being astounded, being astonished, and true faith. You see, verse 51 says that they were astounded, but they still missed the point. You know what the difference is between astonishment and faith? Astonishment is when your mind is just surprised by something, right? Your mind is surprised by something. You come home, your friends are throwing a, a surprise birthday party, and it's like, oh, I'm astonished, right? I'm astounded. That's what astonishment is. When your mind is surprised by something, it's an exercise of the mind. But faith, true faith, deep faith, real faith is an engaging of the heart that ends up transforming then the way that you live. You see, you can be astonished by the delivery of a sermon and not be living in real faith. You can be astonished by the true theological systems that come out of the scriptures. You can be like, that's awesome, I love that. And not be living in real faith. You can be astonished by the love of your church community and not be living by real faith. You can be astonished at the promises in God's word even and not truly have a sense, not really be living in real faith faith. You know why the disciples didn't have that real faith at this particular moment? The text actually tells us. It says they were astounded, Mark says, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And what's interesting about this point right here, so he says the reason they were astounded is because they didn't get the message they were supposed to get just a few hours ago, right? Now, What's, what's fascinating about, about Mark saying that is that Mark, when he writes his gospel, like uh, you guys might be familiar, there's four gospels. There's four accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And of these four gospels, each one is written to a different audience with a different purpose, right? Luke, for example, he's a doctor, he's a physician, he's, uh, he's a bit of like he's a scientist, he's, a, he, he's very analytical. And so every step of the way, Luke is constantly analyzing and providing his commentary, uh, his editorial commentary on what's going on. But Mark, Mark doesn't do that. Mark is all about telling us point after point what Jesus did and how people responded. What Jesus said, here's how they responded. What, what, here's what Jesus did and here's how they responded. Mark is fully action-packed. There's no commentary. There's no editorial. Mark's not concerned with letting you know what he thinks. He just wants to let you know what happened. He just wants to let you know what happened. You see the word immediately again and again and again all throughout the gospel of Mark because he says this happened, then immediately that happened, then immediately that happened. Mark is all about what happened. He's all about the action, except the only place that he's not is in this verse right here where he provides his own editorial commentary to let us know why the disciples didn't have real faith. And he says, at this more dark moment for those disciples, 
the reason they were astounded, the reason they didn't get it, that they, they, they were astounded instead of had re, having real faith is because they did not understand about the loaves. Now, why is that significant? I want you to remember that the point of Jesus' miracles, whether it's the miracles of the loaves and the fish or, or, or another miracle, the point always for Jesus' miracles is always to point and teach something and point to the gospel. That's always the point of the miracles. That Jesus doesn't just meet some physical need, but ultimately underlining that, the point of the miracles is to point how Jesus meets a spiritual need as well. And so when Jesus heals uh, like the, 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 the dead girl and makes her, her, her rise, he shows that he's the one who spiritually also, also gives us new life. When he heals the, the, when he invites sinners and tax collectors to eat at his table, he's teaching. Uh, he's teaching in the miracles surrounding that 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 no one, uh, no one is beyond uh, their need for grace, and that all are welcomed and invited in. When he goes out to the leper that everyone else was avoiding because they were afraid of getting sick, and Jesus goes, goes, goes out to him and, and touches him and heals him, Jesus is teaching something to us about uh, how, how he meets not just our physical needs, but even our, our emotional needs by, by reaching out to the outcast. You see, every miracle of Jesus points to the gospel, points to an aspect of the gospel that Jesus doesn't just meet physical needs, but spiritual ones, that he doesn't just meet our temporal needs, but he meets our deepest needs, the ones that matter for eternity. So with that said, what's with the lesson of the loaves that they missed? What's with the lesson of the loaves and the fish? And the answer is that on the one hand, that miracle teaches us that Jesus is the great and ultimate provider. But on the other hand, it also teaches us so much more than that. It does so much more than that. It teaches us also that Jesus himself is the bread of life, as we learned last week. Jesus is the bread of life who satisfies our spiritual hunger for righteousness. And it's only when you eat his flesh and drink his blood spiritually, like when you feast on him by faith, that your heart will be truly satisfied because it can't be tr truly satisfied with, with physical food. It can only be satisfied by him. That's the specific lesson that Jesus ultimately satisfies our deepest and greatest needs. These disciples missed that lesson. They missed that lesson, and Mark tells us why when he continues his commentary, and then he says, but then he says that their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. Now that phrase should give us a flashback to Mark chapter 4 on different ways that people respond to God's word. If you remember, Jesus talks about there's four different soils, right? And he gives us the picture of a stony heart, a hard heart. The picture of a hard heart, he says that the, the, the picture of, uh, is, is the picture of, of one person who hears this, who hears the word, but who's resistant to change. That's what a hard heart is. It's they hear the word, 
They hear the word of Christ, but they're resistant to the change. And he says, you know, soft soil, soft things, they can be molded, but hard things are resistant to change. What that tells us is with their hard hearts, these disciples were resistant to change. They were resistant to change, and Mark tells us why. He says, because they were all too satisfied with who they were. They were too satisfied with who they were. They didn't long for the deeper satisfaction that only Jesus, the bread of life, offers. They didn't long for the deeper satisfaction. They thought it was just about physical hunger, but Mark points out that no, Jesus was getting to a greater truth that they missed. And so Jesus puts them through this storm so he can strengthen their faith, awaken their faith, revive it. And so a question we can ask ourselves this morning is like, if you're a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus this morning, are you the kind of Christian that is too easily satisfied with where you are? Where you don't actually actively long for spiritual growth in your faith? Where you don't actively long for personal transformation in your character? Like maybe you're the kind of person that is satisfied with a faith that is engaged most of the time on Sundays, but doesn't really impact your life throughout the week. Maybe you're satisfied with holding a grudge against someone just because you're not actively lashing out at them in anger. Maybe you're okay with being just a little greedy because you're not an envious, because you're, you're not stealing from anybody. Maybe you're okay with like checking, checking someone out lustfully so long as you're not committing adultery. You see, all of these things are us selling ourselves short of the transforming grace that Jesus wants for us. All of these are like the small kid, that classic analogy, who gets the sweetest toy on the market, but all they want to do is play with the box. Instead, we need to grab the gift of God's grace. We need to seize the gift of God's transforming grace with both hands and enjoy it. Welcome it. Embrace it. Marvel at it and be changed by it. You see, Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live and died the death that we should have died and hung suspended between heaven and earth as he suffered and enduring the agony of separation from the Father, conquering sin and death when he absorbed the Father's wrath in our place so that we now could live for eternity, so that we can be with the Father for eternity, and so that we would have the ability to run into the presence of a holy God, to be transformed in our character, to be growing and strengthening in our faith, to run into his arms and to find mercy and grace. Does that kind of grace, does that gospel, does this saving, transforming, sanctifying grace merely astonish you in your head, or do you have faith in him in your heart? Like real faith. 
Do you have astonishment that looks at the cross, just mere astonishment that looks at the cross and says like, wow, that's crazy. Or do you have real faith that looks at the cross and is wooed by the pursuing grace of Jesus for you on that cross? A a response and a faith that says, Lord, I'm yours. I belong to you. Have your way with me in this storm. Teach me what I don't know. Make me what I'm not yet. Have your way with me. And if you don't have that kind of faith this morning, you can run to Christ and ask for it. He runs after you. When we are faithless, he is yet faithful. So run to him and he will never turn away. He will walk with you in the storms of life and not just change, and he won't just change the storm, but he will transform who you are by his love, mercy, and grace. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.